This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Picture. So I'm walking down the road, walking down the road. No other car came by. Martin McNally was lost, injured, and broke. He had just spent a night wrapped in his tattered parachute in the woods after hijacking an American Airlines flight, jumping from the back of it, and losing the half million in ransom money on the way down. His eyes and nose were aching and swollen from a reserve parachute he took to the face prior to a rough landing that likely gave him a concussion. Needless to say, he was having a day. I guess about uh, five minutes later, a car came by and a car turned around and stopped in front of me. This guy got out of the car, he opened his door, and he said, uh, where are you going? I says, uh, I'm going to Detroit. He said, uh, where are you coming from? And I think he identified himself as, uh, I'm a police officer. As Mac would later find out, the off-duty police officer who had stopped was actually the chief of police of the nearby small town. But rather than pull the pistol tucked into his waistband, Mac fell back on a more practiced skill. He lied. And I said, uh, I'm coming from Hillary Johnson's uh, house. I was at his, his house with his uh, wife and uh, kid and uh, my uh, younger brother. He said, what happened to you? And I said, well, I was in a scuffle. He and I had a fight. He, he was drinking. I said, heck with this stuff here. I'm leaving. I'll hitchhike home. I said, I'm going to Detroit. He said, where does uh, Hillary live? I said, he lives about a mile down the road. He said, okay, let me see some identification. So I pulled up my wallet and gave him uh, a driver license. And the driver's license was in uh, the name of Patrick McNally, who is my older brother. He said, do you have other identification? I said, sure. So I gave him credit cards. And the credit cards were in the name of Martin McNally. And he said, these aren't your credit cards. And I says, I know that. They belong to my brother. Uh, he let me use them. So he wrote all that information down. And he opened his door to get back in his car. And he says, oh, I know Hillary. He's got three children. And I says, no, Hillary does not have three children. He's got one son, and he's about 12 years old. In my mind, I'm thinking, this guy threw a uh, trick question. I knew from military escape and invasion training that some of these people use trick questions that they, they know is false, and if you answer it, agree with them, then they know you're uh, scamming them. He said, well, would you like a, a ride into town? And I said, well, yeah, sure I would. Save me uh, walking. It was insane, but it was Mac's best option. Battered and bruised, the wanted hijacker climbed into the back of the local chief of police's vehicle, covertly tossing his pistol into a nearby field as he did. 
Once inside the car, Mac noticed there was another occupant up front, the chief's wife. As we're driving, he says, uh, being out on the street at this time here is not a good thing to do. And I said, yes, I can understand that. I heard about the uh, skyjacking that happened in this area. In fact, the police chief, Richard Blair, later testified he'd advised the badly bruised stranger that it wasn't safe to hang around the road during a manhunt for a dangerous criminal. The drive with police chief Blair and his wife was only a couple of miles, but to Mac, it felt like ages. And it was during this ride that Mac finally discovered where exactly he was. The tiny town of Peru, Indiana, 80 miles north of Indianapolis. He drove about uh, two miles into town. He dropped me off near the police station. It was at a corner of um, a hotel in there. He said, you should stay off the street. And I said, yes, sir, I will. So he went on his way. And uh, I looked across the street and I noticed a bar. Went into the bar, sat down and ordered a drink. Now there was about 10 or 15 people in this bar. Uh, I, looked, I looked around, looked at them, and drank my beer. Then uh, went into the bathroom and looked into the mirror. I was shocked. My face looked tore up. Tore up from the floor up. And uh, I definitely looked like I had been in a fight. So uh, I cleaned myself up a little bit, combed my hair, and then went back out to the bar, sat down, and ordered a hamburger. And uh, then I ordered another beer. The bartender at the bar would later corroborate Mac coming in, ordering a beer, looking like he'd been in a fight. When a news report about the skyjacking came on the TV behind the bar, the search for the hijacker was narrowed somewhat today and The bartender remembers Mac asking for the television to be turned down. But then, a police sketch of the hijacker appeared on TV. To everyone else, the sketch looked nothing like Mac, thanks to the disguise he wore on the plane. But Mac got nervous. According to the bartender, the stranger stood up from his stool at the bar and challenged him to a game of eight ball. It wasn't until later that the bartender realized Mac had done this to distract him from the evening news. All these people in this bar, maybe it was just my paranoia, but they seemed to be looking at me, trying to check me out. Who's this guy? He's not from around here. I paid my bill, and I went over to the hotel, and I figured that, uh, yeah, I, I, I better lay low here. So I went into the hotel, walked up to the uh, counter, there was a woman in there. She was about uh, 70, 75, 80 years old. She was an old lady. She said, what can I do for you? I said, I'd like to get a room for the night. She says, you aren't that hijacker, are you? This is American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. I'm your host, Danny Wisentowski. In our fourth episode, Martin McNally is hiding out in Peru, Indiana, trying to find a way back to Detroit 
while the FBI and hundreds of other law enforcement agents attempt to track him down. So I went into the hotel, walked up to the counter. There was a woman in there. She says, you aren't that hijacker, are you? And I said, young lady, I am not that hijacker. I am sure that he's not in this area now. That happened uh, last night. I'm sure he's out of here. And uh, went up to my room. And about uh, 20 minutes later, I came down to use the phone. I called uh, James Petty. That's my crime partner. No answer. No answer. No answer. So I went back up to my room and went to bed, turned the TV on. Police officers and FBI agents in Indiana today were out looking for a wanted man who they believe may be Officials dead. Officials say they are not discounting the possibility that the hijacker is still alive. He's a young man who jumped from an airplane he had hijacked last Saturday, wearing a parachute, carrying a submachine gun, and a bag with over half a million dollars in cash. There was a lot of coverage. Every news program, uh, every hour the news came on, they were talking about the search for the uh, skyjacker. The search for the hijacker was narrowed somewhat today and concentrated on areas close to Officials where... say they are not discounting the possibility that the hijacker is still alive. But there is a general feeling among the searchers now that the hijacker did not survive the jump. I was just uh, tickled pink that they were three miles away from where I was. Beyond the surreal experience of watching news coverage about authorities searching for him, Mac soon realized that the hotel he was staying in was occupied by the very same law enforcement officers who were involved in his own manhunt. They had, I guess, uh... Oh, God, maybe 100 to 200 uh, FBI agents in this area, plus uh, state police and local police. There were a lot of cops and a lot of cop cars. That's why I was uh, determined to stay low in my room and uh, not go out. It was a very tight situation. I never left that lodge or anything. But I left my room to go down uh, and buy some beverages, Coke or Pepsi or something like that. Later, I heard reports. Somebody said that uh, an FBI agent had passed me on the stairs and didn't realize that uh, it was me for two days. I, I didn't leave that uh, room that I was in other than to uh, make the few calls to uh, Petlikowski. While James Petty still wasn't answering Mac's calls, Walt Petlikowski, the other would-be accomplice to his hijacking who got cold feet, finally did. I think it was Sunday morning that I called Walt. Hello? And I said, Walt, how you doing? Listen, I need some help. I need you to come down and help me out. He says, I thought you were dead. I said, well, I'm not dead, I'm alive, and uh, I need uh, you to come down where I'm at and pick me up. He didn't want to come down. 
That was clear. I had to tell him, Walt, there's no other alternatives. I'm in trouble here. I can't do a damn thing. True to his word, and perhaps loyal to a fault, Walt told Mac he'd be there as soon as he could. All Mac could do in the meantime was wait in his room, watching TV with the shades drawn. In that time, the search for the skyjacker of Flight 119 progressed on a number of fronts. First, the leather satchel filled with $500,000 was discovered. And I think it was Monday morning when the money was found. I think the farmer noticed this package in his soybean farm. The money was found by Lowell Elliott. You suspected right off that that's what it was? Yeah, I had an idea it was, yes. FBI agents said the canvas bag was intact. I cracked up laughing like I've never laughed in my life. And the reason I laughed was because I was thinking, this farmer has his farm, and he makes six grand or seven grand a year selling soybeans, and he has a half million dollars in cash, and he turns it into the FBI. I mean, a package of money from heaven. He could have put that in his closet. But in addition to the money bag being found, there was another important development in the investigation. Those back in Detroit who knew Mac and his skyjacking plans were beginning to flip. James Paulzak had called his friend, uh, Robert uh, Kritschke, who was a Detroit uh, deputy sheriff. And he told him that uh, he knew who took that plane in uh, St. Louis. So Robert Kritschke called the FBI office in Detroit. He said, the person who pulled that skyjacking in St. Louis was Martin McNally. My picture was not on the news, but like I say, the FBI had my name. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. It wasn't until Tuesday afternoon that Mac's friend, Walt Petlikowski, arrived in Peru, Indiana. Law enforcement was still all over the place, and Walt tried to keep as low a profile as possible, parking a block away from Mac's hotel hideout. I think Walt got to the lodge somewhere around 5 p.m. He brought a razor and I shaved, and I got myself looking okay. And I cleaned up the room, made sure it was uh, spotless. Went down and I paid the bill. We left. He parked the car about uh, a block away on the main street. And as we're walking, I told him, don't look at the cars. Just look straight ahead and don't look at anybody. That's what we did. 
Walt drove carefully out of town, one of the most wanted men in America riding shotgun. Mac was being hunted by the FBI, and once they were northbound on the highway, beginning their six-hour trip back to Detroit, Walt seemed to realize he was too. He screamed and hollered at me. He said, why did you call me? Why did you call me? There's a record of that. You shouldn't have called me. And I said, Walt, I had no choice but to call you. Now listen to me, Walt. If I get arrested, don't do anything. But you're going to be contacted by the FBI because you are a known associate of me in town. We're always hanging together. We're in a pool hall all the time. We're in bars all the time, hustling. But I'm telling you, when they do, you tell them that you don't know anything about uh, what I was doing. I never told you anything about anything. And you deny it uh, from A to Z. Mac never tried to flee the country. Though, in retrospect, maybe he should have. Kelly George, the daughter of Mac's best childhood friend, Gil, was just a little girl at the time of the hijacking and remembers her family was at their Canadian vacation home while Mac was at large. They all feared he might show up, looking for refuge from the authorities. Something in one of the news reports said that he might have been headed to Canada at one point. My grandma got everyone worked up about the fact that Marty's probably coming up here to try to find my dad, and everyone was in a tizzy thinking the FBI was going to show up and somehow connect him to my dad. At one point, one of the, like a small plane went over, and they were all looking, waiting for someone to jump out of it or waiting for it to land or something. I think it was probably just a game warden plane, but everyone, they were really worked up about it. But Canada was never in the cards, mainly because Mac had no idea what the FBI did and didn't know about him. So rather than plot his escape, Mac began to plot his next score, to do it all over again. I already told Walt, I'm going to get this again, skyjack another plane. I need some more weapons. I need uh, another uh, rifle that I could cut down. That was my plan. By the time Mac and Walter returned to Detroit, the FBI's focus was now squarely on McNally as their prime suspect. Mac claims they began to question his closest associates, namely James Petty. So then the FBI agents went to Petty and said, hey, we got you dead to right. We could arrest you right now, but what we're asking you for is your assistance to have McNally arrested. So at that juncture there, Petty says, okay, I, I knew all about it. The FBI would later claim the fake ID for Robert Wilson led investigators to the real naval discharge papers for Martin McNally. However, Mac claims his former would-be accomplices, James Petty and James Paulzak, who assisted him with the planning, flipped on him in exchange for favorable treatment from authorities. Paulzak got $10,000. He got a $10,000 check from the government, from the FBI, for fingering me as the skyjacker. The only thing Petty got was immunity. They never charged him of anything. Still, Mac did himself no favors in this regard. Instead of laying low after returning home, he'd immediately begun contacting friends, Petty among them. 
So it was Wednesday when I called Jim Petty, and I said, uh, Jim, we need to go out and uh, talk. Apparently, he had called the FBI and uh, told them that we're going to go out and ha have a talk. What they did, they uh, planted a car at the Big Boy restaurant in Trenton. They were over a couple of cars from where we were in Petty's Cadillac. And I was explaining to him what happened and how I lost the money and everything. When we got back to his house, I got out of his car. He said, OK, Mac, that's it. I'll see you. Now, usually, when we came back from coffee, I would go into his house and I'd talk to him and his wife and smoke a little, maybe, and then leave. But this time, it was unusual for him to say, OK, Mac, I'll see you later. But I got into my car. I took off. I was going home. I was fe feeling good. I'm in my 65 Ford. This car is on the corner, and there's people in this car. I go across the street, and I, these lights, the headlights, flicker on and off. That piqued my attention. A car on the corner with a bunch of men in it. So I'm going down the street, slow. And at this particular point, I'm not going to stop at my house for whatever reason. I'm paranoid right now. I'm uh, driving down the street, and I look in my driveway. And in my driveway, right next to my house, there's a car parked. And all of a sudden, a car pulls out in front of me. Get out of the car! These guys, these FBI agents, they had me fingered right then. And they had pistols, they had shotguns, they had rifles, and they may have even had machine guns. At that point there, I could actually see and feel the vibrations of these agents as they get off their triggers. And they say, drop your hands and uh, turn off the car and everything. I open the door and get out of the car. Neil Welch was the man in charge of the Detroit FBI. And it was him who said, are you Martin McNally? I said, who? Who's he? And the chief of police was there from Wyandotte, and he knew me. And he said, that's him. Neil Welch, the director of the FBI in Detroit, he says, Martin McNally, you are under arrest for suspicion of aircraft piracy. Cuff him up put my hands in the back of me and put me in the car. And that moment, five days after the hijacking, would mark the end of Mac's freedom for many years to come. Martin McNally, 28 years old, a Navy veteran, unemployed, divorced, was held on $100,000 bail today in Detroit. Mac was arrested June 28, 1972, and charged with two counts of air piracy, a federal offense that carried with it a potential death sentence. He was held on a bond of $100,000. McNally lived in this house in a quiet street where some neighbors described him as quite normal, others saw him as a loner. 
but hardly any would have expected the trail of evidence collected earlier to point to Martin McNally. For everyone who knew him in and around Wyandotte, Michigan, the news reported on the front page of the paper the next morning came as an utter shock, especially for the McNally family. It was astonishment uh, and shock and certainly disappointment. As far as my ex-wife, I think she was uh, stunned, startled too and shocked. Everybody was. They couldn't believe it. Reality now began to set in for Mac, and with it, shame. The aftershocks of Mac's arrest went far beyond his family. They shook everyone associated with him, especially Walt Petlikowski. So Walt, he was in a bar till about one o'clock, drinking, and he went home. And he told his wife, he says, I think I should turn myself in. Faye Petlikowski, his wife, said, well, if you think that's what you should do, Walt, uh, then go ahead. Walt Pelikowski turned himself in. After making three increasingly damning statements, he was arrested by the FBI, his loyalty finally catching up with him. Petlikowski would supply the government's prosecution against Mac with critical evidence and testimony, and would ultimately be sentenced to 10 years in federal prison after pleading guilty to aiding and abetting. As you might have guessed, Mac would not go down so easily. I told my attorney, Frederick Mayer, I said, there's under no circumstances can we go to court in August. We can't go to trial. We've got to investigate how I was arrested, who was involved in that arrest, and how it came about. Frederick Mayer said, uh, the only way we can get this thing delayed is to file a motion for a competency evaluation and that will set it off, and you'll be psychiatrically analyzed and diagnosed at the Federal Medical Center. The legal strategy here was to buy time in order to find problems with how the FBI arrested Mac and start poking holes in what was otherwise an open and shut case. In a small victory for the defense, the motion was granted, and Mac was transferred to a federal psychiatric prison facility in Springfield, Missouri where he would remain until his trial, now set for November. In that time, Mac would have repeated confrontations with guards that became increasingly hostile, leading the facility to restrict his already limited freedoms. One day, tensions boiled over, and a furious Mac spit on one of the guards. I don't, don't remember exactly why I did that, but I was pissed. And within a matter of hours, my door opened up, Three guards rushed into my cell and commenced to beat the shit out of me. I mean, they beat me bad, bad, bad. My face was like a basketball. It was all, all swollen up and everything. And then they left, and uh, I was so angry. I tore up my mattress, I tore up my blankets, I tore up everything.
The federal building in Detroit now becomes a way station on the road to a trial that may well remove some of that unfortunate aura of romance that so often surrounds the crime of air piracy. By November, Mac would be transferred to St. Louis, where his trial was set to begin. It was a big case, it was a big trial, and it was covered in the media and everything. KTVI reporter Don Marsh, who covered the hijacking at Lambert and watched David Hanley drive his Cadillac into American Airlines Flight 119, was in the courtroom. I got back on the story during the trial. Lasted longer than I might have thought it would, given it was a sort of an open and shut case. There were other parts of the story that, that were fascinating to me that, that developed during the course of the trial. The fact that a sheriff, a law enforcement officer, picked up McNally, uh, who was wandering down a road in, in the middle of nowhere. And for him to try to explain why he never asked this guy wandering around in the middle of nowhere, what he was doing there when law enforcement all over Indiana was looking for the hijacker, so he gave him a lift. It was a comic element to the story. Another thing I'll remember about the trial was McNally himself. He was a very engaging character. He had a, a winning smile, he was a charming guy, and I think everybody in that courtroom was, was rooting for him, figuring, you know, he just seemed like a real nice young guy who really made a real bad mistake, but he was terrifically engaging. Mac could be charming, but not enough to offset an overwhelming amount of evidence against him. To this day, Mac still maintains that the FBI search of his home was illegal, therefore nullifying the evidence gathered there. It was optics, Mac claims, that prevented the judge from dismissing the case entirely. When this thing was near its end, Judge John K. Regan called my attorney, Frederick Mayer, into the chambers, and he told him, if this case weren't so big, I would dismiss the indictment based on what I've heard. Now, any competent and effective attorney knows that when a judge makes a statement such as that, he should immediately file a motion to recuse the judge based on bias and prejudice. Frederick Mayer did not do that. Frederick Mayer was a sellout attorney. So the judge sentenced me uh, to uh, life on count one and life on count two. In yet another cosmic twist to Mac's crime, the Supreme Court had put a moratorium on the death penalty in their Furman v. Georgia decision on June 29, 1972, just one day after Mac was arrested and charged with air piracy. Today ruled five to four that the death penalty is illegal in the form in which it is generally used today. In other words, there was no chance he would be put to death for his crimes, just sentence to die in prison. Martin McNally's brazen, wild, and at times frightening crime of air piracy was certainly illegal. However, once McNally had been arrested and the dust had settled, the facts were undeniable. Beyond David Handley, who tried to play hero and crashed his own vehicle into a 727, 
and McNally himself, whose novice parachuting injuries resulted in a noticeable beating, no one was physically harmed. The entire sum of the ransom money was recovered. Little overall damage was done. An argument could have been made that life imprisonment for a veteran of the United States military turned nonviolent criminal was a bit harsh. Then again, Mack had stolen two planes at gunpoint and evaded law enforcement for nearly a week. This was the tail end of the golden age of hijacking, a time when the United States justice system was intent on crushing the criminal epidemic in its skies. The federal government seemed intent on making an example out of Mac, giving him the harshest punishment possible, a warning to anyone who may be plotting their own future skyjacking score. Mac was sent to Leavenworth Penitentiary, one of the most notorious prisons in America. When I first got to Leavenworth in May of 1973, I was a youngster, 29 years old, and I looked about 19 years old. I was put in uh, admissions and orientation. And the captain asked me, he says, what are we going to do with you? Thanks to his experience in the Navy, Mac got a job in the welding shop and befriended a bunch of old cons who took him under their wing, watching his back. A lot of people knew my case and asked me about it and so forth and everything. I got along fine. Mac's first six months in prison more or less proceeded without incident. But in July of 1973, all hell broke loose. According to Mac, the negligence and abuse of Leavenworth Prison's medical staff had led to a prisoner's death. The circumstances of his death were so horrendous that uh, some people said something needs to be done. The convict had apparently injured his back and he couldn't get out of bed to get his food. The medical doctor at the prison wouldn't uh, give him any service, uh, any, any help. Said, if you don't get up to eat, uh, you're not gonna get fed. We aren't gonna uh, feed you. The guy died in his bed about uh, July the 25th or 26th. So word hit the compound and a uh, decision was made that they needed weapons. CMS, welding shop and so forth. I would imagine 30 to 40 pieces, bone crushing pieces were prepared. They were uh, transported to uh, various convicts in each particular unit, A block, B block, C block and D block. On July the 31st, in the chow hall, at exactly uh, 11.30 a.m., everybody in the kitchen stood up and they threw glass sugar containers thrown up to the front of the uh, kitchen. Now, at this time, they had snitches and rats in the prison that were telling the uh, staff that there's gonna be something happening. All these uh, staff in the kitchen, they were ducking and everything else. Hundreds of dudes ran out of the kitchen. They ran into the um, laundry area of the prison and they, they took hostages in there. In the meantime, dudes in A block 
There were about four or five of them with bone crushers, and they were chasing uh, one of the guards there. They were going to kill him. The guard took off running. He wanted to get into the dormitory of the uh, block. The door was locked. He's shouting, telling the officer in, in the dorm to open it up and let him in. And the officer couldn't just, I can't open it up without lieutenant's authorization. So these four or five convicts with these bone crushers swooped down the stairs and throttled them up, stabbed them to death. Some prisoners at the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, rioted for several hours today. A guard was killed, and four other guards were taken hostage. The murdered guard was unarmed, 39, and a father of three. Mac had watched the weapons that killed him be made. It was around this time when the true gravity of his circumstances hit him like a ton of bricks. This was the rest of his life now, the drab, pointless, unforgiving world of prison. Mac wanted out. And while he would conjure numerous escape attempts over the next few years, they were often half-baked and abandoned before he could execute them. But that would soon change. I was put in segregation, disciplinary segregation, I think in late 1975. Separated from everyone but the other prisoners isolated to their own neighboring cells, Mac would meet another skyjacker, a career criminal, a man he would ultimately come to admire. There was an air of celebrity about him, and I could see this. A man with whom, years later, he would hatch and execute an insane, brazen plan to escape from the confines of prison. He was intelligent, competent, and effective in the criminal activities that he was involved in. And sure, I had respect for that. He was an interesting fellow, interesting character. That man was Garrett Trapnell. Next time on American Skyjacker, we meet Trap the Fox. But looking back on it, a person would have to be, have some mental instability to do the things he did. I mean, I can't imagine myself or even you, the little bit I know you, going to the airport and hijacking an airplane. Can't imagine a normal person doing that. He went down, face down. I jumped on top of him and tried to grab his hands because he said he had a bomb. Everybody's running out the door. So I understand the agents watching. They saw me take one step on board. They said all hell broke loose. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpole. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morecambe. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. 
host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis, and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine, and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. Follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>